Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate his love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Um, if you brought your Bible, why don't you turn to the book of Acts. And uh, I said a few weeks ago that the multitasker that I am I wanted to essentially try to do three things at once in uh, a mini-series that I began, as I said, about four weeks ago. Um, I want to wear three hats, the, the teacher, pastor, and a preacher. Uh, as a teacher, I, want to do a, a, I wanted to do a series uh, looking at the church in Antioch. It's a church we see in the book of Acts, and um, basically I just want to walk through the scriptures and learn something about that church. That is what a teacher does. He expounds, he, she, expounds the scripture. Um, as a pastor, I want to look at the church of Antioch and see how we Bayside Church can learn from that. And one of the things I wanted to do, and maybe I've tried too hard to do this, but we'll see, uh, is I want to look at the Antioch church and say, see how that church relates to the seven distinctives that God has given us here at Bayside Church. A number of years ago, um, God spoke to us as a leadership team about just communicating very clearly some of our distinctives and DNA. Every church is the same in the sense that we're all built on the foundation of Christ, um, but you can have two buildings next to one another, the, the concrete, the building, the foundation looks exactly the same, but once the framework goes up, ooh, actually those two houses are going to look quite different, okay? And the scripture says in Proverbs that God has built a house with seven pillars and through that God gave us a word as a leadership to define the seven pillars, the seven distinct distinctives that make Bayside who we are and that's where these um, wall displays come from. It's not just meant to be pretty art, it is there to communicate something of our DNA. So as a Bible teacher, I want to look at the church in Antioch. As a lead pastor, I want to talk to you as Bayside Church and say, this is who Bayside has called us to be. And as a preacher, I just want to look at some great points about seven characteristics of a healthy church anywhere in the world. And so if you're visiting here today and you're not part of Bayside, or maybe you don't quite follow the Bible teaching thing, I trust today you leave with some type of inspiration to say, no, hang on, I'm a part of the church that Jesus is building, and this is what characterizes that church. I'm going to play my part in being a part of that. All right, so I'm doing three things at once. We've simply called this Seven Signs of a Healthy Church, kind of a generic title, um, as we've been looking through uh, the church in Antioch. In chapter 11, uh, we noticed four things. We noticed that it was a church of growth gathering, giving, and government. In Acts 11, we see a church that essentially is pioneered by a bunch of no-namers. We don't even know the names of the people that started this dynamic church in a city called Antioch. But one of the first things we know about it is that it grew, and it got the attention of home base in Jerusalem. It grew significantly in numbers. Growth is a good thing. And of all the challenges the church can face, I want growth, which is a challenge, to be number one on top of the list. Growth is a good thing. And primarily, of course, that growth came through the gospel, the life of God that was there. And growth is a good thing. Secondly, we saw that they were a church that believed in gathering. We noticed that because Barnabas, who saw that church, went to get a guy called Saul, the Pharisee, who was in a 10-year self-imposed exile. He disappeared out of the Christian ministry circuit for 10 years and isolated himself while he honed his message and it took Barnabas to come to him and to say, Paul, I recognize something on you, mate. Barnabas was an encourager. He brought Paul or Saul 
into the church in Antioch and it said for a year they gathered the church together, day after day, week after week, and taught large numbers of people. A, a church that had started as a gathering had the ministry of Paul teaching them day after day, week after week, to become grounded in the glorious gospel of Christ. Not just gathered together, but grounded together in Christ. We are a church that believes in gathering together for ministry. It's important, and you're, in a sense, speaking to the choir. You're here today because you want to learn from the Scriptures and be grounded in Christ. It's part of what grow groups are about. They're not just growing outward or upward or here because you eat so well. Grow groups are about growing downwards. Because every healthy plant must first grow down. We ground ourselves in who Christ is and the truth of his gospel. Okay, So a church that believed in gathering. But out of that, a prophet came in Acts 11 and said, there's going to be a famine coming soon down south in Judea. And so this church took up an offering to give beyond their borders. They weren't just an introspective church that believed in gathering together for themselves. They believed in giving and going. And they sent their resources down to Jerusalem. And they did so, it says in Acts 11, to the elders in that community. They recognized governmental authority, people that God had put in charge to lead that church. And so we made those four pillars, those four points, we somehow creatively found them uh, in Acts chapter 11. The next chapter that involves the church in Antioch is 13, and we looked at this last week, (coughs) where Paul, uh, the church, the prophets and the uh, teachers gather around Paul and Barnabas and they lay hands on them and send them off on their first apostolic journey. And this is done at a time where the leaders are committing themselves to fasting, praying and worshipping. And in that environment of fasting, praying and worshipping, Holy Spirit speaks and says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. This is a church that knew the presence of God, that understood the glory of God, that knew what it was like to draw near to God, fasting, praying, worship and hearing His voice. We're hearing his voice and obeying his voice voice, was such a natural process because they were a people of the presence. They were people of the presence. They did not fast to gain access to God. They fast to hone their awareness of the access that they already had. They had access to God and they were people who knew the nuances of what it meant to be follow the winds of his leading. And I want to be part of a church. I want to be an individual but I also want to be a part of a community that is sensitive to the leadings of Holy Spirit. And out of that sensitivity is willing to be generous and again give our best because that's when they laid hands on Saul and Barnabas and released them to go on their first apostolic venture, a ministry trip that took around about 18 months to two years. Intimacy with God should should not lead to introspection. Intimacy with God should not lead to introspection because the more we are pressing into God, the more we discover how big He is. And the more we discover how big He is, the, more, the bigger we become. Yeah. And so you don't, as you come intimate with God, it's not like you're engaging in a smaller world. No, intimacy with God leads you into a bigger world, into bigger pastures, into a pleasant place. Surely the Lord has given me a delightful inheritance. The boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. He has given us a big land. And Abraham drew near to God and encountered God. He heard the voice say, like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky, that's how big your inheritance is. 
And to, so intimacy doesn't lead to introspection. It leads to a big picture view. And this is what this church did. They drew near to God. They knew His glory presence. And out of that, God spoke and saying, now give and have a vision that goes beyond your borders. <clears throat> Amen. We're not going to read chapter 14 today. You can read that in your own time. But I've done the next best thing and I've put a map on the screen because whenever you read the book of Acts, I always encourage you, do so with a map. Yes, Craig? Yes, Craig. I've said that before, haven't I, mate? <laughs> um, some of you have trapped... That's, that's right. You and me on YouTube. Um, <coughs> some of you have travelled to this part of the world. Ultimately, at the end of Acts, Paul ends right over there in Italy in Rome. On his second trip, he does the blue line which is where he does Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth, okay, so that's in Greece. But in this initial trip in chapter 13 and 14, he does that little red area there, and that's basically Turkey today, okay. So Antioch's about 500 k's north of Jerusalem, down there near the, near the bottom in Israel. That's the church where he's based from. And on this trip in chapter 13 and 14, after they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas, they travel around that that area, and you can read about that in 13 and 14. What we see here is a few things. We see preaching and teaching ministry with signs and wonders. We see persecution that takes place because of that, and that's the theme of the book of Acts, preaching, power, and persecution, okay, and pressing on. Preaching, power, persecuting, and pressing on. It seems to be the, the, the four Ps of the, the, the book of Acts. Um, we see that this area is known in the Roman, the Romans gave it the name Galatia, that's the name of their province, and it, what happens here in one of the stories is, is Paul gets stoned almost to death. You remember, remember that story? He gets dragged out of the city, they think he's dead, and then he gets up off the ground and just walks into the next town. One of the reasons you need to read all aspects of the Bible is because the Bible explains itself. And here's a great example. For some of you, a great example. In the book of Galatians, when he writes to them, he says, listen, when I first came to you, I came with a physical ailment and it was so off-putting, but you still welcomed me as if I was an angel and you loved me so much you would have even given me your own eye. And many people read that in Galatians and they develop theories about what kind of conjunctivitis Paul might have had. And you can banter about this for hours and, and do all sorts of research about what kind of eye condition, what kind of physical ailment must Paul have had that they would have loved to have given? What grotesque disease did he carry? Well, that's why you read the Bible altogether, because you can come up with all sorts of theories about the conjunctivitis strain that he had, or you can read the book of Acts, which tells you that when he moved into southern Galatia for the first time, he'd just survived a near-death stoning. And he had no conjunctivitis. He walked into that town with the most primitive of first aid, okay, having just had rocks pummeled at his head. He was battered. He was bruised. His eyes were swollen. They thought he was dead. He had rocks thrown at his head. He was bruised, battered, and bloodied because of a stoning. And that's when he walked into the town and started preaching. And they said, they, you, you, they love me so much they would have given me their eye. Okay, so don't come up with all sorts of weird theories about what conjunctivitis he had. Just read the book of Acts, okay? You compare the Bible with the Bible and you discover the ailment that he had was a result of stoning. Is that a helpful tip, just on how to read the Bible? Compare the Bible with the Bible, it all works out, okay? So he goes there, 
preaches around there. And then as they finish in Acts 14, they go back through those towns and they um, anoint or they appoint leaders in those churches. This is the apostolic, what develops as Paul's pattern of ministry. He preaches power, persecution, pioneers a community, and then ongoingly parents that community as he writes back to them. It's all P's, it's all there in the Greek. You'll work it out yourself, okay? And then we pick up in Acts chapter 15 when he goes back to Antioch and he returns to home base to report back on that trip. That's where I'm picking up today. You okay? You follow me? Bit of Bible history teaching, you're all in the right place now, okay? Let's go. Back in Antioch, Acts 15. Today I want to show you how, hopefully, those last two pillars of Bayside, a church known for grace and a church that believes in multi-generations is seen in this church and modelled for us in this church in Antioch. I want to see that today in Acts 15. Let's go. This one, right from the top. Some men came down from Judea. Um, When you and I give directions, we're generally trained to go north is up and south is down. Yeah? That's because we live in a very flat area, generally. When you live in a topographical area you understand that you go up to hill country. So whenever Jerusalem's mentioned, you always go up to Jerusalem, even though it's south. So as you read the book of Acts or you read the Gospels, it always talks about people going up. Let us ascend the hill of the Lord. Okay. So they're always going up to Jerusalem and Judea, or if they're from there, they're going down to other places. Okay. So men came from the south. Anyway. stay relevant Chad okay some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses you can not be saved this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them there are some things you are it's okay just to let slide And there are other things that you say, no, 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 this is a non-negotiable. And Paul and Barnabas were not allowing these guys from headquarters where the Christianity started, they weren't allowing them to come and spoil the message and the grace and the life that they had. They said, no, what you are saying is not correct. And they they, they came into sharp disagreement and debate. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go south to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Why the heck are people from your church coming to us and saying this nonsense? The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. Awesome! When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, those Gentiles must be circumcised and must be required to obey the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders then met to consider this question. And here began, begins what ends up being a lifelong challenge for the Apostle Paul and a major part of the contest of his ministry, answering the question, what is required for, quote, salvation? What is required for people to have an equivalent term, a right standing relationship with God. 
legal term, to be justified in the eyes of God. What is required for that? What is required, related term, different emphasis, to receive eternal life? These things are all uh, different, but they show different aspects of what coming to the Lord is about. Salvation, justified in His eyes, receiving eternal life, they're kind of all similar but different, say the same thing. What is required for this incredible phenomena to take place? When we talk about salvation, because after all, these guys said, unless you do certain things like Moses said, you cannot be saved. The obvious question is, saved from what? Fancy pants term for this is soteriology. It's the understanding of what salvation is. Um, words, word is sozo. It ultimately means wholeness, but it means saving from something and into something else. And ultimately, or probably in the easiest terms, the theme of the Scripture seems to be it's being rescued from the power of sin and the penalty of that sin, which is death. Saved from sin and death. And in the Hebrew mindset, death is basically anything that's separation from God. After all, God is the source of life. And so if you're separate from the one who is life, then the result is death. That's pretty obvious, eh? If you're separate from light, then the result is darkness. So if you're separated from life, then the result is death. So salvation is making sure, is being basically rescued or taken from that death and brought to life. It is being brought to the life giver who is God. And the Jewish mindset, because of Moses, was simply this. God said, as we know at Sinai, if you do the right thing, if you obey, then you will have life. Because if you obey, you will be with me. If you obey, I will be with you, and therefore you will have life. So choose this day which you want. Do you want life? Then obey me. Do you want death? Then do whatever the heck you want. Disobey me. It's your choice. If you disobey, you will have death. If you obey, that is when I'll be with you. If you obey. It's the Adam story, isn't it? The day you disobey, you will die. And of course, physical death is not the ultimate enemy. The enemy for us is death, is separation from God. Because the day that Adam sinned, he was separated relationally from God. It's a relational death relationally dying to having been in a right standing relationship with God to now being separate from or separated from that source. And this is what the Hebrew prophets constantly say to God's people when they disobey. In, in Hosea, when God's people in the northern kingdom disobey so much, he says, listen, God is now thrusting you from his presence. 2 Kings 17 and Hosea something else. He's thrusting you from His presence. It's a picture of the garden. Like Adam was thrust from God's presence and thrust from the land, so you are being thrust from God's presence and no longer in a covenant relationship with Him. The Hebrews had this understanding that when we are in the land, we are, God's presence is with us, that is conditional on our obedience. When we disobey, we're taken out of the land into darkness 
away from God. That's why in the prodigal son story, when the younger son goes away from his father, it, Jesus is very specific to say he goes to a foreign land. You and I generally miss that point because we were Westerners, but a Hebrew person would not have missed that. He went to a foreign land because to be cast out of the land is equivalent to being in death. You're away from God's presence where our God is. Okay, that's what happened to Adam. He was cast out of the... It's not like God left the garden. Adam left the garden. Adam was cast out of the land. The prodigal son left the land. God's people cast out of the land. And Hosea says when that happened, they died. They went out of covenant with God and they became as the nations were. Does that make sense? They became as the nations. So this is why when Paul writes to non-Jewish people, he says, listen, you, Ephesians 2, were once dead in your sins. You were out of relationship with God. You weren't physically dead. You were relationally dead, not in a relationship with God, but He has resurrected you from death and given you new life in Jesus. Okay, The problem of sin and death is a relational death cut off from Him who is the source of life. It's why Ezekiel came to Israel and said, I see you as a valley of dry bones. You are dead, yet God is going to raise you in resurrection to new life. He wasn't talking about physical resurrection, Ezekiel. He was talking about resurrection into a life with God. What's the point of saying all this, Chad? The point of this is simply this. If you disobey what God said, you'll be cut off from life and you will be dead. And so these Pharisees, these Jewish people, were right in their thinking. This is all that they knew at this point in history. To say, listen, if you want to be alive to God, you have to be obeying the law that He gave. Okay, You have to be obeying Torah. This is what they said and this is what Paul said no to. No, that no longer applies anymore. That that we've had in the past no longer applies to us because salvation is not based on our behaviour. Salvation is based on your belief. Salvation is based on Christ's behaviour and you trusting that He did the right thing. I'm going to walk you through something that some people call the Romans road. Okay, This is how Paul, in his letter to the Romans, really expounds this point. Romans 1, I'm just going to read them. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel comes with the power to take people out of darkness and into light, both for Jew and Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed that is by faith from beginning to the end. All the way through. It's always by faith. It's not by faith when you start and then you have to keep obeying to keep justified. No, no, no. It is by faith from the moment you start to the moment you breathe your last. You trust in Jesus only. Because it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the Torah, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the Old Testament actually testifies. This righteousness is given or comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe, not behave, believe. There's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, 
The consequence of sin is death, but God's gift is eternal life in your obedience. The gift of God is eternal life because now He's given you five commandments, not ten. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that if you simply declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Romans 10, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So these words, salvation, justified, eternal life, that's all speaking of what God has given us, and none of that comes through our behaviour. From beginning to end, it comes as a gift that we receive when we graciously accept it, believe that Jesus has met all the conditions on our behalf and we say, yes, Lord, I accept. I accept. Now, that is good news. And you're thinking, Chad, I've been in church for 30 years. I don't need to hear this. Uh Uh-huh. You could have Paul the Apostle in your church preaching to you week after week, month after month, year after year, and yet you are still susceptible to voices coming in saying, oh, but hang on, you still have to do this, this and this wow. to have a right standing relationship with God. You still have to do this to be pure and holy in His sight. You still have to do this to be assured of... De- no, 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 no. You believe. From beginning to end, you trust in Jesus. Christ alone is my cornerstone. Christ alone. It is by grace from beginning to end. Amen. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And if you, if we grasped this, it would so help my job So do it for me, would you? And it would so help Ellie and the worship team. Because they would never no worship team in the world would ever have to rev up a crowd ever again. If people knew and were overwhelmed with the reality that I have everything I need in Christ. I have everything I need. No condemnation, no criticism, no. God looking at me, judging me. I live under a happy, friendly sky. Because on the cross of Calvary, Jesus paid the debt, did all that was required. God's grace has been given to me to take me from darkness into glorious light. The prodigal has returned home. And I've been accepted by the Father. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I would be an idiot to use a biblical word from Galatians. I would be an idiot to go back into it, to try to go back into a system, having begun believing, where I think that my behaviour somehow earns me brownie points in heaven. Jesus has been credited to my account. I look at my heavenly bank account, I see Jesus' name, and that is where my confidence lies. And so Paul enters into sharp disagreement with with these people, who say, well, hang on, now that you've received Jesus, you still have to do X, Y, and Z that God has given us in the past. And Paul's like, well, hang on, no, no, I've given my life to studying what God has given in the past, but now he's doing a new thing. 
And you don't throw away the old, but you understand it in light of the new. So we come back to Acts 15. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them and says, Brothers, you know some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them as he did to us. He made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, for he purified their hearts when they believed by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of these believers a yoke that we, the knee nor our fathers, have ever been able to obey properly? All those laws that God gave us, we could never do them. So why the heck are you trying to put them on other people? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas tell about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through the Gentiles through them. When they had finished, James spoke up and said, Bro, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this because it's written, After this I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I'll rebuild, I'll restore it, so that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles that bear my name. A little bit of theology without hopefully taking too much of a detour. Depending on your take, a lot of people make different things about David's house and what that means about David's house being restored. Some people who have a worship bent like to say, well, David's house being restored means that God wants to have exuberant praise and worship with his people. And to that, the worshipper in me says, fine, okay, great. Some people believe that it means that David modelled something, that he modelled coming into the presence of God with worship that involves singing and dancing, not worship that involved blood sacrifice. Okay, whatever, I, I kind of hear that. But the main thing is I've read through the Bible, particularly last year, is we see when David's house spoke about a united kingdom under one king, and after that kingdom split and Israel died, the prophets kept saying those kingdoms are going to come back together. And so through the book of Acts and through Romans particularly, Paul takes this promise of people who are not in relationship with God and people who are and bringing them together as one kingdom again. And he uses that to say Gentiles are promised to come into the kingdom. In other words, the promise of this northern kingdom that was made Gentile and God said, one day I'll reunite them. That's coming true when non-Jewish people are coming into the kingdom. Chad, that's too much for one day. It's too much for one day. Oh, yeah, okay. No, sorry. The promise of scattered Israel was coming true, was coming to pass when people out of relationship with God, non-covenant people were coming in. Oh, that is, no, that is another day. I'm sorry, that's another day. I really, should, I really should just focus on this. I just saw it because I saw Hosea there and it got me thinking about the Old Testament. I actually want to do a series this year on, on the prophets. I want, majoring on the minors. And look at the minor prophets. I don't know if I'm going to get there, but I, I've, 
because that, that kind of just really helped come alive for me last year. Anyway, the point is this. In verse 19, James is speaking. He says, It's my judgment, therefore, we shouldn't make it difficult for these people turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, the meat of strangled animals, and blood. Why? Because Moses has been preached in all the towns from earliest times and is read every day on the Sabbath. There's 613 laws in the Scripture and they've just decided that those people don't have to obey them for God's sake and yet now they say, well, here's four that you should look at. A lot of debate about that. When you read the Scriptures well, you need to be careful of the motivation behind every instruction. They've just established that there is no law you can obey that will change God's opinion of you in Christ. However, other people's opinion of you matters because other people's opinion of you will determine whether or not you have an audience to speak to them. And there are certain practices that were associated in this day and age with pagan cultish worship and it involved meat and strangled animals and sexual immorality and stuff like that. And so because... All of that Roman world knew that the God of the Jews didn't like that. It would be stupid of you to engage in that behavior. They will, they will not give you an audience and not think that you have anything to do with the God of the Bible, not even listen to you. So you don't do it for God's sake. You do it for other people's sake. This is Paul basically later on when he says, to the Jew I become like a Jew, to the Gentiles I become like a Gentile. I don't want to behave in a way that puts people off so that I won't have a, they won't give me a listening ear. Wow. Okay? So this is why sometimes as you read the scripture, you need to work out, hang on, does this instruction have a vertical implication or a horizontal implication? Yeah. A, a preachers can beat you up and down saying that you need to make every effort to be holy because if you're not holy, you will not see God. After all, Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So make every effort to be holy. It says that in Hebrews. Make every effort to be holy. And some of you have been beaten up with that over the years because someone's told you, you need to make every effort to live holy. It's literally what it says. You make every effort to be holy because without holiness, no one will see God. And if you're not living holy, you will not see God. <clears throat> Jesus lived holy, so I will see God. But I will make every effort to live holy because if I don't live holy, other people won't see God in me. Make every effort to live holy because without holiness, no one will see the God in you. So I will make decisions on this planet that represent God well. What's the point? Grace from beginning to end. The gra grace of God comes to us from the outside in and God accepts us. Grace works in us on its way out so that I can demonstrate him to others. Grace saves me. Grace sanctifies and empowers me to serve, to model him well. And so I come back to the old chatism. Our purpose in life is to know him and to show him. And the grace of God does that from beginning to end. That's why grace kind of has a two-sided coin. It's the thing that comes from the outside in. God accepts us and includes me. And it comes, works from within me out as I'm empowered to represent him well towards others. What's your point, Chad? The point is, as we hit, hit, hit the end of this chapter, and I won't do it now because I'm running out of steam, it says that Paul and Barnabas, they do this circuit, they take this letter, which is the first epistle in the New Testament. Just a bit of trivia. What's the earliest church letter in the Bible? 
This one in Acts 15. Okay, it's written to Antioch. So this first epistle goes to Antioch and it says they were glad because of its encouraging message and it says that many others in Antioch were teaching the word of God. We see a church that began with no-name people that had a big name, Paul and Silas, come and preach and now many, 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 many people, it says, are preaching the word of God. What do they have? They have an empowered community. They have an empowered community of people in Antioch because, in large part, they stood by the gospel of grace. They stood by the gospel of grace that empowered them to serve God in a way they could not serve before. The grace of God makes you be what you cannot be, empowers you, sorry, to be what you cannot be and to do what you cannot do without Him. I cannot be right in the eyes of God. I cannot be justified on my own. I cannot receive eternal life on my own. I cannot resurrect myself from death to life on my own. But God's grace came to me and enables me to be something I couldn't be. I could not be a son of God without him. I could not be a saint declared holy and righteous without him. I could not be, uh, be a new creation without him. The grace of God comes and helps me to be something I couldn't be and to do something I couldn't do without him. We don't grow up out of grace. The gospel of Christ. This is why Paul writes to the Corinthians and out of after chapter after chapter of dealing with all their nonsense, he says in verse chapter 15, now I want to remind you of the most important thing. And the most important thing is this, Christ died for you. He raised on the third day. And he's given us apostleship to spread his message. The most important thing is the gospel. What do we see in the book of Acts? Sorry, in the church of Antioch? We see a church that's firmly established on the gospel of grace. And that message helped to empower them for ministry so that they could continue to be a church that grew and that gave to the world around them. Chapter 16. Paul and Barnabas have a Barney. They have a bit of a disagreement. And they part, it says there that they parted company, but they didn't part friendship. We see a church in Antioch that is relationally strong. And that would be my last point, generations, that we are a church that believes in covenant, commitment and relationship. Some people talk about that as being a real sign of weakness that Paul and Barnabas separated. I don't see it that way because Paul writes well about Barnabas later on. There's certain at times we get into our in relationships, and you know, some people say, you just gotta work it out, work it out, work it out. And actually, you know what? Sometimes you don't work it out. Sometimes you say, you know, the best thing for us to do is just to drop it. For the sake of friendship, we don't function together in that way anymore. It's what Abraham did with Lot. The guys were fighting. And that conflict, and Abraham said, you know what? We're family, mate. The best thing to do is we actually, we just don't try to work together anymore for the sake of our relationship. That's interesting. It's not a relational weakness. It was a relational strength for Paul and Barnabas to admit we've reached a limit together. Let's go our separate ways, but they remain friends in heart. And Paul goes on in chapter 16, and he gets Timothy, a young man, and he begins the most successful mentoring relationship of his life. What's the point there? Family, relationships, and intergenerational activity. Last pillar. 
In our trip in Manila just now, um, someone made a point, said the two most important things, and I kind of brought this up over dinner the other night, two most important things in successful long-term ministry life is revelation and relationships. Revelation and relationships. And I, I guess I kind of see those two things in these stories here. The kind of people that you are surrounding yourself with. Paul took Timothy, realized him and Barnabas that had their time in functioning together, that time had come to an end. I guess if I want to encourage you in two things today, it's those two things. Relationships. Who are you surrounding yourself with and who are you investing in? And does that include someone that's intergenerational or from a different generation to you? I don't know how old Paul was now, 40, 50, maybe, Timothy, a teenager. It's a teenager. And he grabbed him and took him and said, I want to invest myself in this person's life. I think I wanted to, this morning as I was praying for you, I just wanted to issue you a little bit of a heart thing and just say, does God want to highlight someone to you that he wants you to build a relationship with intergenerationally? I, I love the fact that people in this room serve our children, our youth, week after week. That's a great calling. Those who love and get energized by kids' ministry and those who maybe don't as much, but they just see the value in it and do it anyway because they know how important the next generation is. I commend you today. I thank you for making the effort to invest in another generation. And some of us here today, um, maybe even just now, Holy Spirit will highlight someone, maybe older than you, maybe younger than you, that you think, yeah, actually, I want to build a bridge there. And then relationship, second thing is revelation. Um, let's never grow up from the gospel. Let's never grow up from the gospel. Let's never grow up from the awesome reality that we've been saved. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's God's gift. We should be the most grateful people on planet Earth. Not only because we live in one of the best times in human history, despite what all your trashy media tells you every day. In one of the best times, most comfortable times in human history. But we have a God that has guaranteed us eternal life because of Christ. And that should always have us rejoicing. I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day. Bye.